Again, thanks for being here. And let's take a look at our scripture today. Uh, We're going to continue with the gospel according to the prophet Elisha. Elisha, he was the protege of the great prophet Elijah. And uh, Elijah was known for his miracles. And Elisha, his uh, successor, asked for a double portion. And God indeed gave him a double portion. He produced uh, double the miracles that Elijah did. And what we're going to look at today as we close this series, we've been doing this for a couple of months now with these prophets, is look at his final miracle. Interesting thing is he's already dead. And yet, this man's bones, his life, contain the power of God to raise the dead. And so uh, if you have your Bible with you, look at Second uh, Kings chapter 13. Second Kings 13. If you don't have a Bible, it's conveniently printed for you in your bulletin in the same translation I'll be using. And you're welcome to use that. We do encourage you to follow along. And we'll start in verse 14. Now hear God's Word. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And Elisha said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria Only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and He turned towards them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has He cast them out from His presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, 
took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. This is God's Word. So anyway, when you read about these prophets, it can really, really be a challenge. And it can blow your mind because there's all of these miracles that happen and you think, wow, what is going on? I mean, there's, there's she-bears coming out of the forest and mauling children. I mean, it's horrible. And then there's axe heads that float. An axe, iron axe head flies off of a, uh, the thing and, and goes in the water and, and Elisha makes it float. And, and then there's this Syrian general at probably the same army, maybe the same general that was oppressing them, comes down uh, to uh, Israel. He has leprosy, and, and, and Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. His leprosy is cleaned, and his skin is uh, like a baby's skin. And there are more. He raises a, a Shunammite's a son from the dead. There, there's, there's all these miracles, and we can get caught up in the miracles. As I've been telling you, it's so easy to focus on the miracles and think, oh, well, these prophets were just out there dazzling people, trying to use miracles to, to get people to believe. And yet, miracles are not meant to cause faith. Maybe faith comes from seeing a miracle, but that's not what they're for. And I've been telling you week by week that in the Bible, we think the Bible is plumb full of miracles, and the reality is there's only five clusters, five episodes, five very brief episodes, by the way, in over 1,500 years where you see miracles. Moses and the miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness. The cycle of Elisha and Elijah, his mentor. You see a couple of miracles in the exilic period, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, of course, and then you see uh, the three Hebrew children thrown into the fiery furnace and completely preserved. Then, of course, the ministry of Jesus, which is, is amazing, full of miracles. And then for a brief period during the apostolic age, you see this cluster of miracles. Now, I told you, I believe miracles still occur from time to time. And you can pray for miracles. I do almost all the time praying for miracles from my life, people I know, things that we need. God move in a miraculous way. And sometimes he answers and sometimes he doesn't. But these clusters are unique. And they are the scriptural record. Now what is the miracle for? And I told you miracles are redemptive. They are to create, preserve, restore, redeem. They, they accomplish something. As simple as an axe head floating. They needed that axe head. They needed it to build the shelters that these, the schools of the prophets were growing. There was a revival under Elisha. Elijah said, I'm the last one left. But God said, no, there's 7,000. And you see them in the ministry of Elisha building and going into these towns that were controlled by idolatry and paganism. And he's going, they're going out there and they're building there. Really cool. They lose their axe head, one that they had borrowed. I mean, that would have been an expensive implement back then. Elisha makes it float. But miracles are also signs. And listen, you, you, in fact, the Greek word for a miracle is simeon. It means sign. And a sign does what? 
What is the purpose of a sign? A sign is not the thing itself. When you drive out here on I-10, it says El Paso, you know, 20 miles, and Beaumont, Texas, 9,000 miles. You know, that's how big Texas is. <laughs> you know, you say Beaumont, you know, El Paso's right here, and then Beaumont is like, paya, really far. Those are not the thing themselves. They're just pointing to the thing. And that's what a miracle is for. It points to something else. And if you don't keep that in mind, the miracles can dazzle you and you start thinking, what are they all about? They're pointing. And so what are they pointing to? And this final miracle, I think they're pointing to three things. And here's your outline for this morning. We're going to go through them quickly. But listen to what these miracles of Elisha are pointing to. And this one in particular, I think it's fascinating. The whole narrative, Hazael, Ben-Hadad, Joash, and then this little couple phrases just sandwiched in there like almost an afterthought. Oh, by the way, the prophet died and they threw a guy in there uh, because there were some raiders coming. They didn't know what to do with the body. They throw it in there. He comes back to life. And then it just goes on like that's nothing. It is so cool. Let's see what it is. Here's your outline. First of all, we're going to look at the enemy. And you need to know. You all need to know who the true enemy is. so easy to get off track and think the enemy is something else. We're going to look at the true enemy. Then we're going to take a look briefly at the battle. What is the battle that we are engaged in? What is going on in the battle that we see in Scripture? that every person that believes is engaged in. You, me, all of us together. And finally, we're going to look at the grave. The enemy, the battle, the grave. Let's look first of all at the enemy. What Elisha and Joash and this whole thing is what's going on there is you've got to know who your enemy is. And I'm telling you, Every Christian generation, every group of people struggles to really know who the enemy is. We think it's our boss or our spouse or, you know, culture. We want to blame the culture. Oh, our culture's going downhill. Every Christian believer, every Old Testament saint lived in a culture that was not good and not a good place to live in. And always putting pressure on them. To give up their faith. That's exactly what we see here with King Joash. And you've got to know your enemy. And Elisha uses his last breath on this earth to tell Joash, king of Israel, know your enemy. Look at verse 14. Elisha was sick with the illness of which he was to die. And Joash, king of Israel, went and wept before him. Joash, these, these kings of Israel, by the way, they were all wicked. Now, the kings of Judah, most of them were good. There were a few bad ones, but most of Judah's kings were, were good. But these Israel kings were all bad. Every one of them without exception. But he does go and pay his respects to the dying prophet. And he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He's paying respect and he's doing something else. He is seeking military advice. This is uh, the way they expressed the authority of the Nevi'im, which was prophet, 
These prophets held a very unique place in the life of Israel. The Nevi'im. They were there to be counselors to the king. Spokesmen to the king. They were to be the conscience of the king. They were to give the king theological advice. Biblical advice. Cultural advice. Sociological advice. Call them out when they sinned. And tell them when and where and how to go into battle. They were like uh, the, uh, the, the, the head of what, the Pentagon, uh, the, the inner circle of military leaders that advises the president is like the, the number one that would do that. And Elisha says, Know your enemy, Joash. I'm getting ready to die. And in verse 15, Elisha said, Let's do something here. Open the window eastward. Draw a bow. Put an arrow. And then Elisha, and however we can stay, whatever, he reaches up and he puts his hands on the hands of the, the, the king, Joash, and he says, Shoot! And Joash releases the arrow out through the window. Hopefully there was nobody out there. Eastward. And a lot of that just goes out of our head. We really don't understand. But let me explain to you what's going on and give you a, a, a quick lesson in, in hermeneutic, biblical. How do you interpret? What does it mean, eastward? What is east? To those of you that have been in our Southwest Institute, you know what I'm about to say. Does anyone know what east means? East is wilderness. East is the direction Adam and Eve got cast out of the garden. East was where idolatry was. East was where God went and found Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees in the east, worshiping idols. And He brought him where? He brought him west. Back to the land of promise. Back to the land of Eden. Wherever Eden was, it was not over there. There were idols. There was idolatry. There was paganism. There was Babylon. There was Assyria. There was the enemy. There was sin. There was death. When they left the Garden of Eden, they were going away, going east, away from the tree of life. And so when Elisha says, shoot east, he's saying, let's know our enemy. The enemy is out there east. Yes, it was Syria. Yes, it was all of those pagan nations that were trying to take over Israel and syncretize, make them worship other gods and, and lead them into all kinds of sin. And Elisha says, shoot at death. Shoot at sin. Shoot at idolatry. Know your enemy. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Those of you that come here regularly to Christ the King know, I tell you almost weekly what idolatry is. It is not worshiping little idols, little statues. That's not it. They just represent something that's deeper and underneath the surface. You shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew word before means you shall have no other gods before me. In my presence. 
where I can see them. In other words, nothing can come in where I am. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, pastor and, and, and scholar, said, idolatry is anything, listen, anything that occupies the place that God should occupy alone. The Bible never says an idol takes God's place in rank or order, but that we all know there's something out there, some great God, He's got to be the chief God, some head God, whatever He is, He, she, it, them, whatever. But what do we do in idolatry? We bring other things into God's presence, and we say it's God, God, yeah, 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 God, but you got to have this, and you got to have that, and you got to be this way, and you got to do these things, and you got to have all this. Idolatry. The great theologian Stephen Charnock, listen, care if I'm going to read you this, I just cannot spare not giving it to you this morning. Listen to what this great, great theologian, he's dead, but his words live. Listen. A man or woman, a man may be said to make anything his God. When he acts, listen carefully, when he acts as if something below God could make him happy without God. Or, and this is even more subversive, or that God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Thus, now he explains it. Listen to this language, beautiful. People don't write like this anymore. Thus, the glutton makes a god of his dainties. The ambitious man of his honors. The incontinent or undisciplined man, his lust. And the coveted man, his wealth. And consequently, he esteems them as his chiefest good and the most noble end to which he directs his thoughts. This was Joash's problem. And Elisha exposes that problem. He says, I, I see what's going on here with you and I'm going to give you one before I breathe my last. I'm going to remind you, you must know your enemy. And the Syrians simply represent that enemy, but the real enemy is what they will do to you through their idolatry, through their lies, through their absorbing you into their culture and giving up your trust and your reliance in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who loves you and bought you and, and led your people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, away from the idols. Know your enemy. Elisha warns him, shoot, and you will win. But look what's hap what happens. Joash doesn't really... He gets it, but he doesn't get it. Let me explain. Look at verses 18 and 19. Take the arrows. Now he shot out the window. He gets that. Then Elisha tells him, Take the arrows 
the weapons of your bow, the ammunition of your bow, and strike the ground. And he struck three times. And Elisha gets angry and he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck the Syrians until you made an end of them. But now you only defeat them three times, which if you listened is exactly what happened. They only were able to defeat them three times. Now we can, we can think this, and this is what I think, maybe some of you are already saying, gosh, that's kind of harsh, you know. I mean, he, how, was, how was Joash to know he was supposed to hit more than three times? Why is uh, Elisha giving him a dressing down? Why is, he, why is he scolding him and saying, what's wrong with you? What is going on here? And I think the idea is that we don't understand that Joash absolutely understood the imagery from the get-go. Listen carefully. He was there to ask for military advice. Yes? Are you with me? That's what he's there for. The chariots of God, the horsemen of God, my father, my father. He was acknowledging the prophet. And this happened in other places in the Old Testament where that phrase is used because they acknowledge the prophets to be their military advisor, at least partially, not the only military advisor, but one of. And make no mistake, my friends, Joash understood the imagery clearer than we do. When he said, shoot eastward, and he said, Syria's out there, you're going to destroy Syria. And then he says, now take the arrows and strike the ground. Joash understood completely. And it says very explicitly that he only did it three times. Why? Why? This is the, this is the question. Why did he hold back? Why just three times? And let me tell you, I have read commentary after commentary. I prayed, I thought, why? Nobody knows. And so I'm not going to, to, to put something on you that's not in the Bible. I'm just going to suggest a few things for you to think about because I think the text wants us not to know the exact reason why because we need to go out into the motive of the heart of Joash the king and see in that heart our heart our own heart. Why hold back? He was tentative. Was he fearful? Was he doubtful? Or, listen carefully, was he thinking in the back of his mind, I see what Elisha wants me to do. He wants me to strike the ground as a symbol of destroying my enemy. But you know what? I have a back channel going with uh, uh, King Hazael and his son Ben-Hadad over here, and I think I can make a deal with them. If you read the history of Israel, that was all, they were all about that, folks. All about making deals with the enemy. Dancing with the devil. Dancing with the devil. Problem is, somebody's got to pay the band. Right? You've heard that saying. You want to dance with the devil, fine, but somebody's got to pay the band. Can I deal with the enemy? Do I really have to go that far? This is the interior. I'm just suggesting. I don't know. We don't really know. But it's something like that because the context of these kings implies it. 
do I really have to go this far? Do I have to strike and strike and strike till I destroy them? Or could I strike and strike and strike a few times and then kind of hang on to them because hey, I might need them. They might be useful in the future. I mean, they're a great military power. And the kings of Israel were, they were famous, folks, famous for loving idolatry. They loved it. They built two calves. Jeroboam made two calves. Jeroboam the son of Nebat, the one that broke the kingdom up, that was the head of the rebellion, and took ten tribes away. He said, we can't have people going back to the temple in Jerusalem. Let's make two calves out of gold, and we'll put one up in Dan, and we'll put one in the south in Bethel. That way, for the whole stretch of our territory, people can always get to our temple, to our gods, to these calves, because we can't have them going back to Jerusalem. If they go back to Jerusalem, they might hear a good sermon. They might actually hear the truth. We can't have that. The kings of Israel loved that stuff. They were notorious for it. Why did he hold back? Well, folks, you know, let me tell you. Let me just put it briefly. I don't need to go into detail. You know the story. It's an old, old story. Started in the Garden of Eden. And it has gone on forever. In fact, there's very few characters in the Bible, even the best of the best, even Abraham, people like that, David, Solomon. They all got tricked because they didn't know the enemy and they didn't realize the battle they were in. They didn't understand the stakes. They didn't see that it was life and death. Or sometimes they did think and know that it was life and death, but they figured, we can cheat life. I can get by. I can make a deal. I can figure it out somehow. I can skirt the edges. I can run an end around Amazing. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Peter, the apostles. They all struggled with it. And if they did, what do you think is going to happen with us? We struggle with the same thing. We don't know our enemy and we don't often take it seriously. We don't get down into the idols of our life. Because look, I've been there. And if you haven't been there, I can help you. We can talk about how you go there. But if you don't go there, if you don't go down into those things and find out what is really there next to God, and here's how you can know. If something in your life, I don't care what it is, if that thing is taken away from you, and the next thing that comes into your mind is, well then, life is not worth living. My life has been substantially decreased by the loss of this thing, no matter how good that thing is, that thing is an idol. That is the hard, hard truth. And they can be good things. In fact, the good things are the most subversive things. It can be your, your good doing, your, your merit, your, your good works. It could be your family. I've got to have the right kids. I've got to have the right job. I've got to have the right career. I've got to have the, the, the right resume. I have to have a certain amount of money. I've got to live in a certain part of town. I've got to go to the right church, which, by the way, is this one. I, I've, I've, got to, I've got to do this and this and this. That plus God will be what gets me over the, the finish line. My attendance at church, my tithing to church, whatever, name it. My morality, 
I'm a good person. But what happens when you fall? What happens when you lose the job? What happens when the marriage goes on the rocks? What happens when the kid in your life that you brought up in the church and everything is going well, and I know this personally, I have older sons, when they go sideways and they say, no, I don't believe in your God anymore. And I'm going to go do this. And your world comes crashing down. And you say, what? What now? God, where are you? If you don't start getting down into that idol, you start taking a... And what I tell everyone, some of you have heard me tell you, get a stake. Like you would go to Dracula because that thing is sucking your blood, taking you down to death, taking the life right out of you. Put that thing in its heart and drive it in. And next day, it'll probably be back. Drive it in again. Never relent. Strike. Not three times. Five, six, a hundred. But you strike. This is what Elisha is telling Joash. This is what Joash refused to do. He refused to face the fact that the enemy is eastward. It's sin. It's death. It's got me. It will control me. And he will not put it to death. And we do the same thing. We start toying around with sin. Like I've told you in the past, brinkmanship. We, we redefine sin. We say, oh, that thing is not a sin. Or God will accept this sin because I'm very sincere. So it's okay for me to do, you make your list, this and this and this. Well, that's not sin. In our culture, the church, by the way, has this is nothing new, folks. Church has always been trying to compromise sin. Why? Because so did Adam and Eve. It's the very nature of sin. It's the nature of sin, listen, to be in paradise and have everything provided for you. And God to tell you, It's all here for you. I love you. I will never forsake you. I'll be here every day in the cool of the afternoon to love you and be in fellowship with you. The only thing I ask from you is to trust me. Trust me about this tree. The tree is a good tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not a bad tree. Everything in the garden was good. But God didn't want them to know good and evil. What did He want them to know? Only good. Only Him. To rely utterly on Him. Not to have all this cloud and fog of what's bad rumbling around in there competing with the way they were made in the image of God. And what do they do? Like St. Augustine, he says, you can't have that pear. He goes and gets the pear. And they took the fruit and they ate it. And and we have suffered from that ever since. Every human being. We always want to bring something in. The battle with sin is old. And I had a friend of mine. His name was Robert Davila. We were competitors in business. I had a business for 20 years before I was uh, a a pastor. And uh, 
Uh, we were in the same business together. He had a business. His was on the east side. Mine was over on the west side. And, and we, were, we were fierce competitors. We would steal clients from each other. We'd undercut price. I mean, we were just like that. But we were great friends. We'd go out together. We'd talk. We'd laugh. We'd, we'd tell stories about our clients that we didn't like. And we'd say, you know, I really hate this one. I'll give him. You can have this one now. And then while I'm telling that to him, I would go get one of his good ones. You know, I'd see it. We're stealing clients. But we loved each other really great. But Robert was a heroin addict. And I'm not talking about just a regular heroin addict. I mean, he was mainlining heroin, heroin going to the shooting galleries in Juarez and, and shooting up. And he, he grew up an orphan. He lived in the back of a car. You know, he's eight or nine years old, living in the back of an abandoned car in Juarez, covering himself with newspaper. You know, it's so foreign to us. I mean, we're thinking, that's got to be a fable. No, this is a man that lived that. In El Paso County Jail, Jesus said he'd never heard the word Jesus, never heard Jesus, didn't know nothing, didn't know Jesus from nothing. And Jesus appeared to him in that cell while he was going through withdrawal and saved him. And today he's a Christian. I love him. And he told me, Sin, Chuck, sin will take you further than you ever imagined. It is not something you can toy with. It's not something you can make peace with. It's not something you can make deals with. We think we can control it, but it ends up controlling us and enslaving us. And that is the world today, a world enslaved in sin. And that's the story of the Gospel. That Jesus comes to break that sin. He said, if you abide, listen, if you abide in My Word and you're truly My disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And the Jews objected and they said, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Oh, never mind Egypt and never mind the Romans that are standing out here right now. They're crazy. Because sin will make you illogical. Sin will paralyze you. Sin will put you in a fog. You won't be able to think clearly. And they say, how can you tell us that we're enslaved? And Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And it's repeated over and over and over. You see, Elisha tells him, strike the arrows on the ground. Joash understood. If he really understood, if he took it seriously, and what I'm hoping you all will do this morning, this day of Easter, the first day of April, that you will say, I'm going to take the arrows of God and I'm going to strike whatever is in my heart. I'm going to go to battle. I'm going to go to war. And I'm never going to relent till the day I expire and gasp my last breath. If you have a child that's out there and they're away from the Lord, you go crazy on that kind of stuff. If you're fighting a disease or you're not in a job or you you've got a relationship, whatever it is. The battle is there before you. And the promise is, my hands are on you. You will defeat it. You will win. Will you trust me? That's all he's asking Joash to do. Trust me. 
Elisha had never failed these kings, by the way, for his whole ministry. Every time he said something, it happened. And they're so nutty that they wouldn't believe him. How crazy. How illogical. Irrational. Strike. Israel, by the way, just very quickly, let me, let me just give you this and then we'll finish. Israel was at their lowest point right now. At this, Jehoahaz was Joash's father. And in verse 7, just a few verses above, it's not in your bulletin, but you can look at it in your Bible. It explains what the army, those guys, you are military folks, listen to this. This was the whole army of Israel. It had been decimated by the Syrians. And this, and so the writer, the author says, just so you know the context, what's going on here, here's, here's the army. Beautiful. You've got to love this. They had 50 horsemen. They had 10 chariots. And they had 10,000 infantry. Enough for a very paltry parade. But they weren't going to go up against these armies, Syria, Assyria, Babylon. These were, my, these were huge armies with hundreds of thousands of troops and the latest weapons and money galore. And this is what Israel had been decimated to. Fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand troops. Who's reading this story, by the way? Let me finish with this. Who's reading it? The folks that are in the story are not reading it. There's a group that's reading this story, and you know where they are? (laughs) Some of you do, if you've read your Bible. You know the irony that is just thick. It should be running thick right now through through your mind. That the people that are sitting down with their scrolls and they're listening to a rabbi read to them this story. Do you know where they are? They're in Assyria, 722. This was written in about 800. Just 50, 60 years later, this whole entire population of people were murdered, exterminated. It was a holocaust. And the few survivors that were left were hauled off to become slaves in a foreign land. And you know they were gone, and they're gone forever. Judah, the southern kingdom only lasted about a hundred years, not even a hundred years later. And then they got carried away, but some of them survived. There was a remnant. But Israel was decimated. The ten tribes dispersed. And a few of them survived and got folded in. But for the most part, they were gone. This whole story, folks, would have been read by people who were enslaved and had lost everything and weren't even living in their own land. And they would be reading this. And can you imagine the hopelessness? Saying, wow, if our kings had just listened to Elisha, if they had just listened, it was hopeless. And even though at the end, I read you the passage at the end where it says, you know, Jehoash, Joash was able to go and recover some of the cities, but eventually they lost them. And now they're in exile. Hopeless. Kind of like Friday night during the Tenebrae service here at the church. Kind of like that. There's our king 
and it's over. All hopeless, except for this little passage. You've got to love it. I don't know if you, I love the Bible. When I read this stuff, I just cannot stand it. I want to dance. If I was a pres- wasn't a Presbyterian, I would dance. But I, I mean, it would shock you so badly that you'd probably run for the door. But I could dance right now. Because listen, Elisha died, he was buried, and the Moabites, these bands of roving bandits, invade the land every spring. And, and the Israelites there are, are burying a man. They're, they got, they're going to the funeral, they're carrying this dead body, and here come the Moabites to raid, and they go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And they see an open grave, and they throw his body in, and what's inside that grave? The bones of Elisha. He's long gone, he's dead. But he comes back to life and he stands up. Wow! It's almost like the author is, is, is being humorous. He's saying, you know, this is Elisha's last hurrah. He's dead, but watch this. Watch this. It's kind of like the joke that you read in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-five, The funniest verse in the Bible. Pilate telling the guards... Go to the tomb. Make it secure as you can. <laughs> Make it secure as you can. I, I, I can't believe you're only laughing. That's <laughs> hilarious. Go make it secure as you can. Miracles are signs. What is this grave pointing to? What is the sign? Let me give it to you quickly and we'll be finished. There's another place. There's lots of graves in the Bible, but there's another place where Jesus is standing outside of a grave. You know the story well. People preach from it every Easter, and so I can't pass it up. The grave of Lazarus, Martha his sister, Lazarus' sister comes out. He said, if you'd been here or my brother wouldn't have died, Jesus says he'll rise again. I know he'll rise again, Martha says, in the resurrection. And Jesus says to her, what? I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me will never perish. And the ones that believe in me, they will never see the inside of a grave. Never. Do you believe this, Martha? And she says, yes, I believe you're the Christ. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out bound hand and foot. What is the sign that Jesus did? What is Lazarus' grave pointing to? Another grave. No bones in this grave. Inside this grave. Inside this grave. You know what's inside this grave? Nothing. It's empty. 
And to this day, scientists and critics and, and skeptics have said, where's the grave of Jesus? Why didn't the church preserve? I know you can go there on a tour and they'll take you here, thither and yon with the expense of some money and tell you this is the grave, this is the grave, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But they really don't know why. Because the early church didn't need to preserve the grave because they had a living Savior and they didn't care. So what is Jesus? There's another miracle. What is that one pointing to? And I'll tell you what that grave points to. And listen to me if you've never listened to anything else I say, folks. Listen to this. That grave points to the end of slavery. What John Owen called the death of death. Life. To all who believe, victory, the cross and grave of Jesus conquered the enemy. Sin and death enslave us, terrorize us, and keep us captive, the writer of Hebrews says, our whole life long, fear of dying. And Jesus said to Lazarus and to you and to me, I will go in the grave for you and as you so that you never have to go inside a grave. Your body will go, yes indeed. But you yourself, you will never see the inside of a grave if you will trust me. Peter was there. Peter said this, and I'll finish. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. But God raised Him up. Loosing Him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held it. Christ suffered, listen, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Me, Jesus says, me for you, I will go in the grave so you can come out. That He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is Easter. Christos Aneste. He is risen. The grave is empty. And He's telling you, trust Me. Will you? Will you trust Me? Let's pray. Father, please... Please bring this into our hearts and minds. Give us the courage to face those idols that are so deep down inside of us. And to take the arrows of God and strike the ground and put them to death. With the power of Your Spirit and with the joy of Your Holy Spirit, we know that we are in a battle we cannot lose. Jesus has conquered for us. Help us, please. Save us. Have mercy on us, Father. In His name, Amen.